First Thessalonians. I've called this uh, message this morning, Finishing Well. And uh, it, it actually comes from a phrase that a pastor friend of mine in Georgia, John Alls, he runs the camp that our kids go to. And uh, his, his church, his church, a uh, little, pl- little tiny church out in the middle of Roberta, Georgia, uh, just recently asked him to resi- retire, and uh, they want to bring in a, a newer and younger pastor. Um, and so for years and years, that's been his calling, his full-time pastor, and now he's working with just the camp, and uh, he's retired, but he's in his, I think he's in his 80s. Um, and Brother John's just a godly, godly man. And his children, many of his children I know, I've taught many of his children through uh, college ministry and um, I work in Birmingham all those years. They were all related to the Bible college where I served and uh, was part of. And But his, his children have been encouraging him with this phrase, Dad, be sure you finish well and uh, finish well. In other words, as you retire out of full-time church ministry, keep using your life for God and do something that means something uh, for others. And so... Um, I just wanted to give you three traits that I think are part of that finishing well and uh, what it means to be a, a person that's mature in their godliness. I know a lot of people that know a lot of Scripture. I know a lot of Christians who go to church and they're senior saints at churches. And I'm just going to be honest with you as a pastor. I've, I sat with uh, four different pastors in the last two weeks, um, local guys that minister, we minister together. And... Uh, you know, when pastors get together, we have to talk about y'all. That's our deal. Um, we have to vent to other pastors, you know, and go, you'll never believe what they did or whatever. And that's really awesome because my church is just, I just brag the daylights out of, out of our servanthood and the heart that we have to reach others and serve the lost and the, the way we uh, help homeless people and those kind of, I mean, I just love, love our church and, and people call me all the time and say, hey, how can I help today? Um, they don't, the other guys, most of them don't get that. They're like, hey, how come you're not helping me today kind of thing. And so, uh, but it's fun to, fun to be with them. But it's interesting because we, we got in a conversation the other day, three of us got in a conversation the other day about senior saints that are just a handful. I mean, they're just a handle at the church and they're picky about everything and they complain. You're all the time, pastors all the time having to try to make aunts, uh, Susie and sister Mary and all them real happy. And, you know, uh, I was trying to remember what my, my college, professor used to call it uh, oh sister hoot and brother toot that's what he used to call them he used to say uh it was always every church gonna have a sister hoot and a brother toot and you just got you just got to work through that with them you got to help them grow up but what it turns out to be is is there are a lot of people who've sat under teaching all their life of the word of god they've studied the word um they've learned a lot of scripture they've just never ultimately applied it to themselves and uh, they've never grown in their understanding of the body of Christ and what the church is supposed to be like, what they as a church are supposed to do. And so they end up being just uh, a pain <laughs> to the whole church for a long time. The church has to work through issues with them. And, uh, of course, the leadership and the staff have to do all that. And so I was blessed yesterday when we had all our seniors up here. I was thinking every one of these seniors just worship God well, serve God well. They love the ministry here at Northside, they, they've let us go through a lot of music transition. I know that a lot of the songs we sing aren't the favorites of our seniors. I get that. Some of them aren't even my favorites. I'm getting old enough now that I'm missing the old stuff. Um, but it's really awesome to have seniors that get the big picture and see the big picture. And uh, so these, these three statements we're going to look at this morning really model what I think 
the three men we honored yesterday and their families model. So the first thing that I, I see in, in my uh, three mentors from our church and, and in a lot of our church family is they walk their talk. In 1 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul makes a really, really big deal about what ministry is supposed to look like. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, in verse 9, he says, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, how holily and righteously and blamelessly we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into His kingdom and glory. There's three things that are tied into this little passage. The first is the the walk of these ministers, these good men that came to support the Thessalonian church. And their walk was pretty straightforward. It says, we were hardworking. We were hardworking night and day. You saw it in our lives. So there's a, let me just say to, to you, there's a time commitment that good, mature men and women are supposed to have um, to life, to, to survive, to family and to ministries. They're supposed to have a time commitment to their family and to God. Um, they worked hard night and day. I'm going to try to say as nicely as I can to the upcoming generation. Stop being lazy. That was nice. That was really nice. Let's try to keep that nice. There's a, there's a generation of folks coming up. I'm saying to my college and career age and to the younger ones under you, okay, you got to work hard in life. I know everybody in life has this dream of sitting at a computer desk all day with a big air conditioner blowing on you and playing video games for half the day and then doing a little bit of work and going home and getting a nice paycheck about that, okay? I know that's a dream job. There's only a handful of those out there. Bill Gates got some of that sewed up. There's a handful of people that can do that. The rest of us, normal people, have to work hard, okay? You got to get up early in the morning and you got to get up early enough to get your devotions in so that you can be devoted to Christ, which is what's ultimately going to show up on the page here in a minute. You got to get up early and be devoted to God. Then you got to go out and work a job and be devoted to it and work hard, sometimes night and day. You know, I'm in my 50s now, early 50s, and uh, there's very few days that I haven't worked at night as well. Just, you know, late last night, you're going to see a video I put together last night about 11.30, finished it up, and uh, good gracious, the night before, those of us that were setting up the gym and all that, I stayed up here till. I don't know how long that was, but it was after midnight when I got home, uh, just putting together those videos that we saw yesterday. Because I really wanted those to be excellently done and, and well done. I wanted them to be a blessing to our church family. But the ministry that people, uh, the life that people tend to want to lead sometimes looks a lot lazier than that. Um, it doesn't include work. It includes a whole lot of free time and a whole lot of fun time. These godly people that Paul's talking about, himself and Paul and Silas and Timothy, those guys, he's saying, you know how hard we worked. Night and day we worked and proved ourselves among you. He's actually saying we have a proven record of time commitment to you. If any of you have great dads, great dads, uh, great moms in your life, you will testify of them one day uh, in their senior years. You will testify. They spent a lot of time, late hours at night, playing with us or helping us. They stayed up doing projects all night long. Uh, I'll never forget when 9-11 hit and uh, Caleb had to do that doofus notebook. I still have that notebook somewhere in our 
stuff, but his history teacher made him have to do this notebook full of stuff uh, about 9-11 and all that had happened and all that. And Caleb's a little bit of a procrastinator occasionally and a lot of a procrastinator in high school. And so here it is like the night before, and he's got to have, what was it, 900 articles or something, an outrageous number. So we're looking everything up. We're running out of printer ink, going to Walmart, 1 o'clock in the morning getting printer ink. You know, we're cutting and pasting and gluing and making a notebook. You know, and I sat beside him all night long getting that thing done, just labor of love, you know, and then wanting to strangle him in his sleep that night. So, But that's what it looks like. You, That's the walk of these ministers. And Paul's very clear about that. Then he says about his talk, he says this. He says, you know how fatherly we behave towards you. And he says we, we had exhortations, and one translation says exhortations and comfort. It's really awesome because in the original language, when you look at these two words, the, the word exhort does mean to give instructions. Now, you know, uh, we as fathers, you know, we like to give instructions to our kids. We like to tell you what to do. This is exactly what this word means. The exhortation that Paul's talking about here has a little um, preposition in front of it that's attached to the Greek word, and it means while we stood alongside you. In other words, I didn't shout the instruction across the lawn at you. I didn't bark it through the house at you. I came and stood beside you and gave you instructions while I showed you what I meant and how I wanted you to do that. And that's what Paul says, godly, mature Christians look like when they're coaching and guiding and mentoring other people, when they're trying to raise their children, their grandchildren, they stand alongside them. They, they share time with them. They stand alongside and go, no, here's how you do that. Let me help you do that, show you how, and then I'll get you doing it, right? So it's a, to stand alongside and exhort, and the word comfort is exactly the same preposition in front of it. The word comfort means... They stood alongside us and comforted us. They didn't comfort us with a text. (laughs) You know, they didn't try to send us a a comforting card. Um, Good fathers, as Paul would say here, good fathers and good parents and good mothers and godly mature people get in your presence and show you how to do things. And then they come alongside you and offer you comfort when it's not going well, when when those big bumps hit in your life and it's just all you can do to get through that. They, They stand alongside you to help you and to comfort you, and speak words of encouragement. By the way, it's a huge part of, of uh, ministering to people. You've got to build people up today. You know that depression, uh, and I know with the, with, with the death of um, Robin Williams, I couldn't get his name ahead, death of Robin Williams has kind of brought a bunch of that to the surface, and if you didn't read Josh's blog on that, my son, you should uh, go to his site and read that. Really good article, and then there's a whole bunch of comments following it that are kind of interesting to follow people's take on that stuff. Um, but I know that depression um, overwhelms people. I know that our society is loaded down with it, loaded down with depression. People struggle with it all the time. People you may not even know in your life are struggling with depression. And uh, so we have to be encouragers. When you have Christ living in you, the, the work of God in you is to give you joy, hope, and peace. Joy, hope, and peace. So somewhere in you, you should be able to bubble a little bit of that out to people that need a little encouragement and just say, it's going to be okay, you know. God's still on the throne today. Brother Cochran, uh, you know, often says, we know who wins in the end, you know. I know who's, the victory's ours. We know who wins. It's okay. It's going to be a long battle, but we know who wins. So we have a responsibility to, to be encouragers to one another. And then ultimately, the goal of these godly, godly ministers is in verse 12. And he says, here's why we did all of this. We worked hard night and day. We, we loved you like a father. 
so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I double dog dare you to make that your meditation phrase this week. What does it mean for Stan Givens? What does it mean for Cody Walker? What does it mean for Vicki Martin or Warren Watson or Justin Davis? What does it mean for you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is a magnificent phrase to meditate on. And it will humble you to death to get that in your head. The goal of godly people is that the friends around them walk worthy of the crucifixion of Christ. They walk worthy of what Jesus paid for on the cross. You walk worthy of that. Man, that's a big word. Worthy. Did you spend the whole week doing activities, um, sharing words with people, conversations with people that made it worthy of the death of Christ? And this last week, would you put it on the scale that says, now my last week was worthy of the gospel of Jesus. That is a very hard word for me to get my head around. You understand? I'm just, I don't even know how to preach it to you. I'm just telling you, it's a complicated thing to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You're going to have to get real close to Jesus to do that. You have to spend a lot of time with him. But these guys are saying, here's our goal with you, and you know how we lived among you? That's what you need to model. Just like we did, you do the same thing. Listen to this passage. Um, copied the Message Bible into my notes. Uh, just because I like the way it sounds, it's an interesting read on it. I know the Message is, is a, a little bit of a paraphrase, but it's a great take on this verse. So 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, he says, You remember us in those days, friends, working our fingers to the bone. That was one of my favorite favorite phrases of my mom. My mom used to work her fingers to the bone. <laughs> and uh, But working our fingers to the bone up half the night moonlighting so you wouldn't have the burden of supporting us while we proclaim God's message to you. You saw with your own eyes how uh, discreet and courteous we were among you with keen sensitivity to you as fellow believers. And God knows we weren't freeloaders. You experienced it all firsthand. With each of you, we were like a father with his child, holding your hand, whispering encouragements, showing you step by step, listen to this, how to live well before God, who called us into His own kingdom, into this delightful life. How to live well before God. That's what good parents and grandparents do. When I stood up here with that, those three men yesterday and looked out at their friends and their family, I thought, you know, these three men have just tried so hard to say, here's how you live well with God. Here's how to do it. And that's what we should be doing. The first trait of finishing well is to walk your talk. And be sure in your walk and your talk, you set those godly goals. The second thing I find in Philippians chapter 2, I'd like you to turn there with me. Your physical Bible, hopefully you have one, your physical Bible. Philippians chapter 2. And this is one of my favorite New Testament characters, Timothy, Paul speaking. Timothy, he's one of my heroes. And Timothy, Timothy is a very unique uh, man. Well, when he came to his faith, he had some huge hurdles to overcome and become the godly man that he was. Um, but Paul says to the Philippians, he's writing a letter, but he's, he's raised up the Philippian church as he did a little church plant there. He got put in prison, had a whole bunch of challenges there. That's the Philippian jailer thing. That all happened while Paul was trying to do that work. And uh, so now he's writing a letter back to him a while later to just check on them, see how they're doing. And he says, verse 19, 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I can be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I want to send Timothy and get the information back. Now here's what he says about Timothy. It's my favorite verses about Timothy. There's no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ. Paul says, if I had to pick one guy that I could send to help you, to give me feedback and then to help you, it'd be Timothy. Because he's the guy that cares the most about Christ. And he cares the most about that. Timothy was not interested in his own life, his own things, his own stuff, his own focus. His focus was specifically on God and others. And he just wasn't interested in his stuff. It didn't matter to him what was happening here. It mattered what was happening in God's arena, in God's world. What a phenomenal concept of a godly person. Concern with the things of God, not the things of others. Timothy, by the way, uh, would be very weird in our culture. In American culture, the, the ultimate goal of the American culture is to be all about yourself, to make sure you're okay. Take care of number one. Make sure you, you have a, a solid career and you you're have an upward mobility in your career. and You can go from this step to this step to this step and you can do better and better. And Timothy had this distracting care not for himself like that. He would be, he would be a weird phenomenon in the United States of America. He just wouldn't fit. And I'm saying a lot of our young people, um, as you guys are seeking careers in your direction in your life, okay, be very careful you don't get caught up in some sort of uh, cultural flow that's going to take you where you have to be concerned about yourself first. Be concerned about the things of God. What are the things of God? Well, Timothy knows. I used to study this passage when I first studied it. I was like, it says he's concerned about the things of God. Like, God has things? What are those? What are the things that God... And it, and it literally means what, what concerns God concerns Timothy. That's what it means. And, and I got to think, well, I didn't know God had concerns. Then I got to thinking, yeah, I do. What's the number one concern of God? Soul of man. God loves souls. And he actually says he sent his son to die to pay for those. Um, he says he would that no man would perish, but that all would have eternal life. So God's heart for lost souls, Timothy gets. And that's why Timothy's calling in life became exactly what Paul's was. I'm going to go tell people about the gospel over and over. And uh, the, the, the words here used in the original, uh, it's called a distracting care. And it literally means Timothy's concern for lost people and concern for the things of Christ distracted him from life. You ever talk to somebody that was, wasn't paying attention to you? I felt bad yesterday. One of the ladies from uh, Robert's friends from out of town was, was telling me her story. Uh, and we were standing on the, uh, near, out in the gym I was standing at the stage, and I, I had seen out of the corner of my eye some of our little kids went up, up the stage and went behind the curtain. There's big signs down there. Don't go back there. And there's nothing back there really bad, but there's a bunch of insulation. They're going to get all itchy and get it all over them and then, you know, be loving on parents. They're going to get all itchy. So I, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, gosh. And so I'm trying to have this conversation, this intense, good conversation, but I'm watching these kids, two of them, little bitty ones, toddle up the thing and go around behind the curtain. You know, and I'm trying to, and then I'm looking, somebody in the gym I can yell for to help me so I can finish this conversation and, and solve the child issue, you know? And uh, so I was, was, you know, working through all that in my head, but I had a distracting care for this child and this family while I'm trying to carry on. Like, ever's had that? I remember, 
when uh, our kids were on the beach, when they were little on the beach, and I was trying to tell Annette something, and I had my back to the water, and the kids were in the water. No way to talk to a mother when the kids are in the water. Just not going to happen. She's not even, she's not even tuned in at all to what I'm saying because there's, her kids are in the ocean, <laughs> you know, and they're small, and we're going to just constantly be, you know, getting eye contact and making sure everybody's okay, and her brain is right there. It's not over here. That's what Paul says about Timothy. Timothy, when you talk to him about uh, career stuff, when you talk to him about, um, you know, the international stuff or whatever, he goes, yeah, but. And there's souls that need to be saved right here where we are. There's people I need to reach with the gospel. There's a community just down the road that we could start a little small cell group and begin to reach people with the gospel. We've got to get the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to get that to some people. Timothy was distracted by that. It's what we should be distracted with. It should distract you every day to go, how effective am I, as, as, from whatever part of church you belong, whatever church you belong to, you're supposed to be reaching the community for Christ. At Northside, we're supposed to be reaching your friends for Christ. You're supposed to be. And you're supposed to have some sort of effort now reaching that. And uh, it, should, it should be important to you that you do that. The third trait that I'll just mention to you real quickly is consistently serving God. Consistently serving God. And that goes way back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel's a great man of integrity. He lived all his life. He was, he was captured as a little boy, taken away into exile, and raised by people who did not have his religious beliefs at all. He was raised by the Babylonians under all kinds of horrible, terrible uh, cultural teachings. But he stuck to his original teachings of faith from, uh, from his Hebrew upbringing. And he stayed with that all along. And God just blessed him and blessed him and blessed him and blessed him. As, a, as an older man, as an old man now, um, he is so wise and so intelligent. And he's raised himself up as a captive in this country to such a level that the king at the time is saying, I need three people to run the country for me. I want to pick just three. I don't want 500 people. I don't want 40 people to meet with. I want three guys. I want Daniel and these other two goobers, okay? And he's like, I'm going to pick three guys to run the country. And Daniel, uh, man after God's own heart there, Daniel turns out to be one of those. <clears throat> and you guys know the story. If you look in uh, Daniel chapter 6, it seemed good to Darius, verse 1, to appoint 120 satraps, that's governors, over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three... Over them, he's going to put three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. So he's, he's in charge of the 120 that are in charge of the whole country. And his, his upline is the king. Okay? Very powerful guy. Except a bunch of the governors and a bunch of the other guys are very jealous of Daniel in that. And so you guys know the story in Daniel 6. They decide they're going to make, set some sort of trap for Daniel. They start going through all his stuff and trying to find some reason to blame him or make him uh, not look good in the king's eyes. And it's really amazing, his integrity. If you look in verse 4, uh, it says, Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to his government affairs. Now listen, Daniel is a government official. okay, And so other government officials, lots of them, lots of them, are going to start going through his record books. They're going to go through his desk. They're going to go through his computer files. They're going to go through all his paperwork. And they're going to find a reason for this government official who's been running the country for years, 
they're going to find something of fault in him. That wouldn't be very hard to do, would it? No. Everybody's got a little corruption in him somewhere. He's cheated on his taxes somewhere. You know, he gave some money to some guy that, you know, some little farmer that was just on the side, and he just bumped some friend of his up a little bit to change. Something happened like that. Not Daniel. It says, listen, in as much as they, they could find uh, no grounds of accusation or evidence of corruption, in as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found in him. God, please give us some rulers of our country like that. Please, just pray. Would you pray regularly for our governors and our, our state senators and our congressmen that they would look like Daniel's? Wouldn't it be great to have some guys that we couldn't find corruption in him? We tried. Here they are searching all through his house and all through his records and all through his stuff, and they can't find it. They ultimately do end up peeking in his windows. And they find out he's a man that prays regularly to Jehovah God, which is not one of the Babylonian gods. So they make this rule. They have the king, who's very full of himself, have the king make a rule that says, for the next few days, nobody can bow to anybody but me. Nobody can pray to anybody but me. Nobody can do that. King makes the rule. Daniel, as you know, He's going to go in and bow three times a day like he always does and pray to God. When that happens, now they have reason to throw him in the lion's den. But it's very interesting what happens when they get ready to do that in verse 10. Daniel, verse 10, knew that the document was signed. He entered his house, now his roof chambers. Uh, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God so that he, as he had been doing previously. Uh, the men came and found him praying, and then they went and told the king. Um, and the king answered, uh, or the king kind of, if you read the rest of this, the king really freaks out about it all and has a very uh, uh, anxious moment with it. Actually, the king stays up all day trying to find some law that can break this one law that he's written. Um, but when he finally has to submit Daniel to the den, he says, verse 16, Then the king gave orders to Daniel and brought him and cast him in the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, verse 16, Your God, whom you constantly serve, He will protect you. The king had faith in Daniel because Daniel constantly served God. The king recognized. Here's the, here's the attribute that the king saw in Daniel. Consistency. With who? With his God. He's like, man, you just all the time, you're all the time praying. And you constantly serve your God. You've had years and years and years of captivity with all the other foreign gods that we've been trying to shovel down your throat and teach you about. No. Your God, whom you constantly serve, he'll protect you. Now, the king stays up all night, worried and sick about Daniel, can't eat, he doesn't know what he's going to do. Daniel's sound asleep down there with a bunch of starving lions. He's sound asleep, having a restful night, a bunch of big cats, having a good time. And then the next morning when the king shows up at the den to find out if he was okay, verse 19, the king arose uh, with the dawn and at the break of day went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den, uh, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, delivered you, uh, been able to deliver you from the lion's? What a great title. What a great thing to be known for in your community. The God whom you constantly serve. And I want to say to our gentlemen, to, to Brother Warren, to Brother Robert, and Brother Cochran, who will hear this on CD, I'm sure. Um, that's one of the things that I've grown up as a child 
in this church watching in their lives. They constantly serve God. They're consistent in their walk with God. And the ladies, uh, Mrs. Watson and, and Miss Emily, and, and I saw Miss Helen here, and, and uh, all of you guys, uh, you, you just have a huge impact in my life um, because I get to watch you consistently serve God. And it means the world to me when you do that um, because it teaches me how to do that and it sets an example for me. So I'm just going to let you look at those three attributes real carefully and uh, think through them. Remember I prayed at the beginning of our service today that you would, uh, um, that we would not be overwhelmed because this is a big deal to walk your talk, to be concerned for the things of God, and consistently serve God. That's a very, very high responsibility. Um, Jeff Moore is a songwriter from years ago. Uh, close, close friends with Stephen Curtis Chapman, Josh and I's favorite. And uh, Jeff Moore wrote a song called When All Is Said and Done. And it says, when the music fades and all everything's gone, I need this one thing to be true about me that I live my life for Jesus Christ. It's a three-minute song, and I want you to listen to the words real careful. I need you to turn the lights out. Um, We're going to show you a little video that I put together with some of the pictures we had from yesterday. And uh, just just we listen real careful to the words, and Tyler, make sure that's up pretty strong. Just hit play, Mary. It's fine.
huge testimonies to me, to all of us. Amen? Y'all give our seniors a hand. We honor y'all. That's right. Amen. Thank you so much. That's for all you seniors right there. Amen. Some of you are seniors that are standing now. <laughs> um, let me just say, you can be seated for a second. Let me say, you can't have the walk your talk, the consistency with God if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ. If you've never trusted Him, um, that interaction between Him and you in a personal relationship, um, you can't have those things. And you won't ever be a great person. You can be a good person. Um, by the world standards, you'll never be a great godly person without Jesus Christ being in the very center of your life and uh, being the person that you count on the most, the one you count on the most for everything. Um, so I just want to pray as we close. I'm going to pray a prayer of salvation.